you would, turn back with me in your copies of God's Word to our text this evening, which is the 12th Psalm. The worship of our God is instructive. Uh, You and I, as we come to worship God, of course we come with the intention to pour forth our praises that are to emanate from the heart. And so, friend, I think often we think of praise as being entirely one-sided. We simply are, as it were, pouring forth our love and our adoration to the triune God, who is our creator and redeemer. But the word of God reminds us that the worship of God is instructive. It's not purely one-sided, as it were. And, friend, certainly the Psalter is supposed to form our praise, not only because it gives expression to our own affections, not only because it forms for us our petitions, but principally and fundamentally because the Psalter is supposed to transform our hearts. This is, as we've said before, a normative guide for Christian affection. This is a picture of the godly man, not just so that we may look at him, we who have a penchant for ancient religion, but that we may look at him and under the ministry of the Spirit of God be transformed more into what we sing and what we see there. The worship of our God is instructive, and the Psalter is instructing our hearts in that work. I mean, it's for that reason, of course, that the Apostle tells the church in Ephesus, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The Psalter is to be instructive to your heart and mine, and certainly the Psalter, as we come to it this evening, as we take up this 12th Psalm, is intending to do precisely that. We're not merely to intone these words. These words are supposed to give us, really, a new perspective, and so, under God's grace, new affections. This is to be formative for you and for me, even as we bring it in praise to God. And friend, as we look at this 12th Psalm, we'll notice that there are similarities to how this Psalm seeks to orient our perspective aright to what we've seen in Psalm 11. Both 11 and 12 in the Psalter are very much synonymous. Their, their themes are alike. Even their structure, to some extent, is very similar. The 12th Psalm begins with a plea. Help, Lord. Obviously, the psalmist, and we should understand him as the spokesman for the church and his generation, is under duress, just as he was in the 11th Psalm. And in this 12th Psalm, you'll notice that these first two verses constitute this prayer. In this moment of duress, under this affliction, he goes to God and pours forth his supplications. But then in verses 3 to 5, you'll notice that he leaves prayer as such, and he moves to promise. He thinks there of what God has promised, both with regard to the wicked and with regard to the church. And in verses 5 to 8, again, very much like the 11th Psalm, This composition concludes with a note of unmitigated confidence. The psalmist knows the outcome. He knows the outgate that God will provide. And so as we take up this psalm, what do we find? Very briefly, friend, what you and I see here is a man in the visible church of God, under clear duress, but especially pinched with the reality that the church of God in which he subsides is a church under defection, 
a church that is moving more and more in a way of declension. I will demonstrate that in the time to come. But, but as we see this before us this evening, the theme that this 12th Psalm insists upon is that the godly plead divine promises against general declension. The godly plead divine promises against general declension. I want us to see this under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, the decline that the psalmist presents to us in this 12th psalm. I want us to see the declaration that he lays hold of from the, from the lips of the Lord. And then finally, I want us to see the dependence that the psalmist exercises upon those promises. So take, first of all, the decline in the psalm. Again, as we've said, the first two verses are obviously petition, and these petitions are coming forth from a real and a pinching providence. And what is that providence? He tells us in, in plain words, the godly man ceaseth, the faithful fail. And both of those lines, the senses, they have come to an end. Now there are two ways I suppose we could understand this. The one sense would be that of, of the idea that the godly man has perished. Isaiah 57, the righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. The sense is perhaps they have been persecuted. And now, all that the psalmist sees around him is the carnage of that persecution. They've been brought to an end. Or, and I believe the second sense is perhaps more in keeping with the, with the main thrust of the psalm. He looks around him, and he sees that there are few. Even in contemporary parlance, that, that is precisely how we would use the idea of failure. If a field fails to yield crop, we say that that crop has failed. And so, friend, the sense is, as we see in this 12th Psalm, as the psalmist looks about him in the church of God, he sees not a crop of godly men. He doesn't see piety on every corner, as it were. Instead, as he looks around, he sees precisely what he'll say in Psalm 116, where he says, in haste, all men are liars. I find none that are true, none that are genuine. Like Elijah in his own day, he wonders, is he alone? The godly man left. And we see the cause for this exclamation. He says here that those whom he does see, those who have not failed, are those who speak vanity, with flattering lips and with a double heart. And what's so striking about this description, friend, is not, is not the fact almost is insisting upon anything that has been personally committed against himself. In fact, the language that's deployed here is not language that one would expect if the psalmist was lamenting persecution as such. No, the psalmist is looking around him, again, a man living in the visible church. A point you and I should not miss as we sing the Psalter. And he says what he finds there are flattering lips, a double heart, men who speak vanity. They are self-serving, a deceitful generation. But that's not all the psalmist gives to us as he describes this age in the church. I want you to notice how he takes our mind to the source of this defection. You find it in the 8th verse, where he says, The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. You could translate that quite literally, 
when the vilest men are in high place. He's looking to rulers. He's looking to rulers in a national church. He's saying that there he finds ungodliness. And as there is ungodliness in those high places, and the way that it's given to us in the Psalter, he could mean either civil or ecclesiastical office. He says, as he finds ungodliness there, so he sees, as it were, ungodliness flourishing all around him. These self-serving rulers in the national church have, by encouraging ungodliness, really led to the oppression of the godly. That's the decline. The psalmist, again, living in the visible church of God, says there are men in high place who have encouraged only others to participate in their defection. This decline, then, is clearly indicating that ungodliness in rulers is really a form of oppression to the godly and the godliness. And I want you to notice, friend, that this is oppression. I said I know already that those lines that give to us the the works of the ungodly here do not spell out for us some kind of active persecution of the godly. But the psalmist is very manifestly an oppressed man. This is obviously an affliction to him. And in order for us, I think, to understand this appropriately, to understand this in the way that the scriptures would give it to us, we need to understand that, friend, any encouragement of ungodliness is, in fact, positive oppression of the godly. That's perhaps worth repeating. The psalmist here sees simply their speaking in vanity and with flattering lips and with a double heart is an oppression of the godly. It is, in one sense, a genuine act of persecution. And you may say, well, how can we understand it? Well, friend, one way that I find helpful is to remember that godliness is, by the very law of nature, and of course in the visible church, by the very word of God, it is supposed to reign. The godly are supposed to be in high place. They're not supposed to be oppressed. It is their right, their title, and their true prerogative to be exalted. Just like perhaps you might imagine an heir to a mass estate. It is his right and his prerogative to inherit that estate. Friends, so the godly and godliness are to be esteemed in the land as a right. It's that to which they're entitled to. And friend, when the opposite is the case, as it is in the age in which the psalmist lived, you are to understand that this is an act of oppression. When defection is encouraged, when ungodly men are in high place. It's as though, friend, the heir is defrauded of that to which he has a rightful title. You and I are supposed to see our society that way. Friend, it's not the case that persecution only, in a scriptural sense, occurs when Christians are taken into gulags. You and I are to recognize that in the oppression of ungodliness, sorry, in the oppression of godliness, simply by exalting ungodliness, the church and the godly are are oppressed. And so, friend, you and I certainly should, as we come to the 12th Psalm, we should have fellow feeling with the psalmist. Surely you and I can recognize our own condition here. 
And as you look at the text, the psalmist continues to describe this oppression, this defrauding of the right of the godly, by describing it especially as the oppression of the poor. It's striking here. The oppression of the poor here is just really a defrauding of right. In this sense, friend, you are to recognize that the way in which the poor are oppressed in the psalm is not because the psalmist is envisioning these high men, vile as they are, as it were, cracking whips upon these men who are poor. No, friend, the way that the poor are oppressed, well, the way they are oppressed, friend, is simply by defrauding them of that work of charity that is due them according to the law of God. And so what do we find? Well, friend, we find the psalmist lives in an age very much like the one described for us in Isaiah 1. How is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. It ought to have been a picture of godliness, but now only that which is vain. Only that which comes from flattering lips and from the vilest of men seem to reign. And then I want you to notice this as well. Friend, in this text, you and I have a very clear sense, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) that this is really the ascendancy of ungodliness that the psalmist has in view. It's the fact that they are in high place, the ungodly, that he sees wickedness on every side. A friend, I want you to notice that the psalmist does in that eighth verse tie us to the source of this defection. He hones our focus there for a basic reason. Because he is saying that all of this ungodliness flourishes under the encouragement of both the positive encouragements and simply the example of those who are exalted. My people hath been lost sheep, says the Lord. Their shepherds have have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to mountain. They have forgotten their resting place. That's the kind of thing the psalmist is describing for us here. Those who ought to have been shepherds, both in church and in state, have instead been examples and encouragers to ungodliness, and so defection has ensued. But what does that teach us? And that eighth verse is so very crucial to this text, because he's saying this is ordinarily how it is. Do you want to know, really, the ordinary way of decline? Psalmist says, whenever you have men exalted in either the civil or ecclesiastical sphere whose lives are not marked by holiness, well, friend, he says it very plainly, then the wicked walk on every side. Note how the psalmist ties declension in the church, how he he ties the falling away of a nation to her leaders. For ourselves, friend, I think this ought to urge us, if I can say this selfishly, you need to pray for your elders and your pastor. And not necessarily for their longevity, not so much for their health, but for their holiness. Because what the psalmist is saying here very plainly is, friend, it's their holiness that is the ordinary means God deploys 
to stave off ungodliness among us. Their holiness that will encourage the holiness of others. And, and friend, I'd urge you to pray for that, not just for our sakes, but for your own. This is the ordinary way God works in the church. And our earnest prayer ought to be that the Lord will reform, even in our day, that situation that's so plainly set before our own eyes and so, so, equal, so, so clearly described in our text. That's the decline. What then of the declaration? In verse 3, you'll notice the Lord is said to cut off flattering lips. So here, the psalmist says, these time-serving hypocrites, they will come to an end. And then, note what he says, really, giving to us the words of God. He says, for the oppression of the poor, sighing of the needy, now will I arise. I will set him in safety. (coughs) Now, I want you to notice there are two things there. One focus is very clearly on justice. God will come as judge of all the earth. He will come to the house and he will bring judgment to it alas, at last. But then you notice as well that second focus is on the salvation of his people. Here described as the poor, the sighing, needy. Now those are the words of God. But I want you to notice as you come to verse 4, he, he sets those words in stark contrast with the ungodly. They say, who is Lord over us? And friends, the sense of that is the same sense that you have in Isaiah 5, where the ungodly there say that they will draw sin, as it were, with a cart rope, and say, let him make speed, and hasten his work that we may see it. Friend, these ones are saying, this God who is supposedly judge of all the earth, I've never seen him, never seen him curtail my wickedness. Who can stop us? God hath forgotten, as they say in the 10th Psalm. He hideth his face, he will never see it. It's the same sense. Friend, these ones are perpetrating defection, and the psalmist shows us from their own lips that they have no thought of God, no thought of his retributive work, no thought of justice. But then in verse 5, you find these. It's a very basic statement. Now... Will I arise? In Psalm 50, you have a very similar, a very similar turn of phrase. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. What you see in Psalm 50 and what you see in Psalm 12 are very much the same ideas. The ungodly are not expecting the Lord to work, but the Lord will. Now friend, what you and I have to see in this text then, as the psalmist looks both at justice and salvation, divine judgment and the reformation of the church, the psalmist is laying hold on the promise that God will rise and reform his church. He will arise and he will reform her. Obviously, friend, he does this with judgment. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment. In other words, this is a purging or pruning work. God will, as the psalmist says in Psalm 12, he will put an end to the flattering lips. He'll put an end to those with a double heart. He will prune his own vine. 
But positively, friend, you and I are also supposed to see that this is a, a real promise. That, that he will be the one who then turns and, and puts shepherds over them which will feed them. Unlike those rulers described in verse 8, part of the reformation of the church is actually giving them those who are godly rulers. Again, in the civil and ecclesiastical spheres. And so, friend, what the psalmist leaves hold on here is that blessed promise, that declension as he lives in it. Friend, it will not last forever. God has promised to rise and reform her. And friend, I'm not speaking here simply eschatologically about the end. But God does this time and time again. We see this in the pages of Scripture, and of course we have record of it in the annals of history. God is often in this work, after a period of declension, demonstrating His grace to His own, purging the church, and bringing to them those who are godly, both in church and in state. And friend, we are supposed to see that those works of reformation are really fulfillments of the very promise that the psalmist leaves hold of in our text. The clenching will come to an end. God will arise and reform her. And he will do so again and again. Until at last, friend, all of his enemies are put under his feet. And again, friend, holiness and only holiness will reign in the church. Every course of defection, friend, will come to an end. And the psalmist lays hold of that promise, and so should we. But thirdly and finally, as we leave this text, I want you to notice his sense of dependence upon that promise. It's given to us in verse 6, and, and friend, we shouldn't miss that this is a genuine connection to what the Lord has spoken in the preceding line. The psalmist says the words of the Lord are pure words. And that's response, again, to what has gone before. The Lord's words are pure words. But then he brings to us something of an illustration. He says, as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Now, he likens the word of God to silver. And you and I recognize, of course, that, that this is a clear indication of the value of this word. The psalmist, seeing the difficulties in the church about him, he goes to these precious promises, and they are precious to him indeed. In other words, friend, you recognize that this is the man who, who really does, from the heart, say that the law of the Lord's mouth is better unto him than thousands of gold and silver. Unlike the unbeliever to whom the promises of God may be empty things, vain things, things that, of, that are of no profit, no, the psalmist says these things are precious to him because if God has promised, God will fulfill. These things are precious to him. And friend, certainly they ought to be for us. They, they should be precious to us, especially in a day of decline as we live in. God will arise and reform his people. God will rise he will work. And friend, no hand will let his. And that should be precious to us because God who has promised is faithful. But I want you to look back at that second line where there again you and I are told that 
the word of the Lord is as silver. But, but that's not all that he says. That's not all that he says. He says especially that it was as silver tried in an earthen furnace purified seven times. My friend, I don't think our focus on the preciousness of these promises actually exhausts the sense of this line. Because what you have in this line is not just attention paid to the value of the silver, but to the method of its purifying it. To put it even more directly, to it being in the furnace. I don't think that's extraneous at all. Friend, especially when you contemplate what the 12th Psalm is really concerned with. The psalmist sees himself in a furnace of affliction. And it should be no surprise to us that he says that the word of God is as that which is in the furnace as well. Now how can we understand that? Especially knowing that of course the word of God lacks all imperfection. It is altogether perfect. There's no impurity within it. So how can we liken it to that which is tried seven times? I think an analogy... Actually, more than an analogy. It's actually an illustration. It comes to us from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, where the Lord says to the church, He says, He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger, and feed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that He might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Of that doth man live. What you notice the Lord saying to the church there, is he's saying, I set you into a desert place. I brought you into a place of hunger. Into my own, as it were, furnace of affliction. To prove my word. That you live by the promises. More than by temporal nourishment. I sent you to the desert to demonstrate that my promises are faithful and upon those promises men live. And friend, you and I are supposed to recognize that that's very much the case right throughout the word of God. It is true that God calls his people to be tried. He calls them to go into a furnace of affliction to to demonstrate the, the genuineness of their grace. But even as the book of Job so poignantly sets before us, Even in those trials, friend, that furnace of affliction is really to manifest the faithfulness of God. It's really to manifest that even in the furnace, God's promises are old true. He will be faithful even in the fire. And so, friend, I don't think it's a mistake at all that the psalmist calls our attention to the fact that the word of God goes into the furnace, purified seven times. Even as his people are in affliction, so, friend, they go with the word of God into that furnace. And then you find the psalmist really concludes that point by saying, and thou shalt keep them. The word of the Lord lacks all impurity, because it is altogether a true word, spoken by the faithful God. And if he has promised to keep his people, even in the furnace he will keep. And so you see here, friend, a very clear picture of the godly resting upon the certainty of the divine promise. I know I've said this to you before, but allow me to remind you of of an illustration that I think very much ties with our text. 
In the 19th century, there was a minister who was going to the deathbed of an aged saint. He had left his Bible at home. And so as he went to her, to her room, he had asked if, as he was reading texts to her, if he could use her Bible. And so he opens up her copy of the Lord's Word, and he begins to read to her from it. And then he noticed in the margins the letters T and P. He continued reading for a space of time until finally curiosity got the better of him. And he asked the woman, why these markings in the margin? Why the letters T and P? And her response was very simple. She said, oh, sir, T means tried. P it's proven. In other words, friend, what she was saying was precisely what we've said from the 12th Psalm. She went into the furnaces of affliction to which God had called her. She went there taking God's promises. And then, friend, in the furnace, she found that they were proven. And that's precisely how the psalmist makes use of the divine promise here in our text. And that's exemplary for how you and I are supposed to do the same. I want you to notice, friend, in this text, that for our comfort, this is a passage that reminds us that God is pleased to confirm his faithfulness in the midst, even of defection, even of persecution in the church. God is pleased even to make that furnace a place in which he manifests his faithfulness. That should be a comfort to you and to me. Uh, Friend, if we looked at affliction, if we looked even at these dark days so described by the psalmist as really stages upon which God will manifest his faithfulness, the truth of his promises. Friend, I wonder if we would go so halting and hesitating into those providences ourselves. No, friend, the Lord's word will be tried even as his people are in the furnace. He will manifest his faithfulness there too, and he's pleased to do so. But there is an exhortation in this text that we close with. And really, I think to illustrate this, we should go back to Deuteronomy 8. You see, friend, this psalmist demonstrates that he went into this affliction holding to promises. And so, friend, this is not a sermon where we're simply saying that God sometimes calls his people to live in times of defection or persecution. If, if that's what you've taken away from it, I, I submit to you humbly, you've missed, you've missed the mark by a mile. That's not what the psalmist is demonstrating here. He's not just demonstrating that God's people will encounter affliction. He's demonstrating that the godly will enter affliction holding on to the promises of God. And there's a vast difference between those two things. Between entering affliction simply and between entering affliction holding to the promises. This is illustrated by going back to Deuteronomy 8. God said to that church in that day, He said that he was sending them into the desert to demonstrate that men are to live upon his promises. In other words, he was testing, proving them. How few went into the desert holding on to the promises of God? 
Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Miriam. The rest perished in the wilderness, says the writer to the Hebrews, because they heard the word that it was not mixed with faith. They tested and tempted God. When really, friend, they ought to have gone into the desert holding to to the promises of God and to find his faithfulness. And so that's the exhortation from this text as well, friend. You and I are to emulate the psalmist. When you and I go into difficult providences, when we see declension all around us, friend, the exhortation from Psalm 12 is to enter that with the promises of God. To hold on to that promise that, that all of those looking to Him, none will be put to shame at all. That all of those laying hold of the Lord Jesus Christ have Him as their guide even unto death. That they would enter those, enter those difficult providences with that demeanor, that spirit of Job. Though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Friend, here you have that emulated so wonderfully in Psalm 12. And certainly, certainly, friend, this 12th Psalm is supposed to shape our hearts in a like manner. Friend, you and I will not sing this aright. We can intone the words. We can have them committed to memory. But friend, it will not inform our worship unless we do as the psalmist has done here. And may it be, friend, that we do find, as that woman on her deathbed, as the psalmist himself in our text found, that the promises of God are sure. And we may hang our lives upon them. Amen.